We discussed German author Karl Grunert once before on the podcast a few months ago in our episode on spy fiction. We discussed his short story, The Martian Spy. Karl Groner seems to have specialized in very short fiction, for the most part. Uh, I don't think we found anything that he's written that's over 15,000 words or so. Yeah, at least not in that anthology, The Martian Spy and other novels, stories. I don't know how exactly you translate the title, but yeah, everything in that was short stories. Yeah, certainly in his brief background, there is no mention of, of a novel or anything like that. But he seems to have been somewhat... Somewhat regarded, at least in Germany, and for some reason there were a number of Russian translations of his work, but not in English. Yeah, the Russian translation I looked into for the segment we'll be doing after this, I could only find evidence that the Martian spy was translated into Russian and not any of the other stories. Uh, Again, that's dealing with the sources we have on the internet now, but... Uh, definitely the Martian spy was. We read a paper called Off With Their Heads, and yeah. it specifically mentions this one being translated. Yeah, I, I couldn't find evidence that that was the case. It, I checked the citation on that, and the wording it uses was some Russian translations were made of some of his stories, but the citation only points to the translation of the Martian spy. Huh, okay. Well, in any case, it seems like he's a f- then fairly underrepresented author, certainly in the English-speaking world, maybe pretty much everywhere outside the German language. And the story that we're going to discuss now is a very brief piece, and it's called Mr. Vivacious Style. And it was published in 1908 in The Martian Spy and Other Stories, or other novellen, which I guess doesn't necessarily mean novels in German. Yeah. So these, none of these are very long. This one is only maybe, I don't know, 20 pages Oh, if that. I think this is like 3,000 words. Yeah, very yeah. short. I think when I was reading it on my, my tablet, I think it was about eight pages or so. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> so we're not going to get into any more about Grunert, mostly because we summed it up in the last episode and not really a lot is known about him. But this story was short and rather charming. I quite liked it. Now, there is one thing about this story that I don't think any of us like. But if you guys don't mind, I would actually like to save discussion of that till the very end. Sure. So do we just not talk about that thing until we're done? <laughs> no, I, I I didn't like that at first, and I will get into that later. But I think there might be some justification why it, it turns out better than I thought. So, yeah, we'll get into that later. But I think there's definitely a lot to say on that. Gotcha. What do you think of this little story? I did enjoy The Martian Spy quite a bit more, but I still I still had fun with the story. I still thought like, you know, we will get into that part. But other than that, I still I think that this is a, a nice story to read. I and it, like it is, it is short. So I think it doesn't take too much time to read. So it's just a nice bite sized story. Yeah. It's fun and it has cool imagery. I mean reanimated separate heads. Who doesn't like that? Yeah. It's always fun. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Anything, and then a head, there's a head in a pan, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought this was comparable to the Russian spy in terms of quality. Again, there's that, that one thing that I want to just save till the end to mention, but in general, yeah, this was a fun read, so let's get into it. Vivacious Style 
is a popular man among intellectuals and cultured people. He is a social thinker and writer of powerful and charismatic political articles in The Sun and other newspapers. He seems to be a bit of a firebrand and speaks out vehemently against the what we now term, I guess, the Jim Crow laws in America, yeah. believing in equal rights for the people of color in the country and elsewhere. However, a terrible disaster has struck, and on a train to Buffalo, there is a terrible derailment. Many people are killed, and Stiles' headless corpse is found in the wreckage of a carriage. Headless? Yes, indeed. Months later, it seems some articles have been showing up in the sun again, and they really seem like those of vivacious style. Same style and everything. <laughs> and some of his fans think that it's a rotten joke and are not convinced, but even though there's been no interaction with the man himself reported, the editors of the various papers that he's submitting to certainly seem convinced. Now, though, we have a sort of confession from a doctor magician writing to the newspaper from Nowhere City, which seems to be somewhere in Ohio, maybe. I do want to say I think it's very interesting that the two stories we've read by Grunert have both been set in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, both of them. I am interested in reading the rest of the stories mm-hmm. because reading these two, I'm I'm sort of reading and translation to and, and them being very short pieces overall. Like maybe he's never going to be a total personal favorite, but there is definitely something sort of fascinating about, yeah, finding this obscure writer in German who's like writing, setting all his stories in the U S why is he doing that? Maybe because <laughs> he sees it as some kind of technological forefront and it's just really interesting to him. He seems interested in the social problems and ramifications of, of a place like the United States as well. He also seemed to be pretty interested in H.G. Wells. Some of the criticism says that some of his stories mm-hmm. are very much derived from his work, um, mm-hmm. which we haven't read. These two aren't really from him, but I guess he wrote a story that is almost the exact same thing. It's an H.G. Wells story called the star interesting yeah i mean i can see the influence but i wouldn't say i mean even the martian spy like i almost see it as a fan response to war of the worlds you know yeah. kind of like yeah. well here there's something going on here at this observatory in arizona or whatever it was and even though the the martians of the martian spy i guess don't look like the martians of <laughs> Or of the worlds who are like huge and reptilian and can't really function in Earth gravity. Yeah, like it's it's just interesting that he maybe he maybe was inspired by that and just wanted to take it from a different angle. So Yeah. What if the Martians from War of the Worlds looked more like us and could yeah. hide among us? Very unsettling thought. Yes. Mm. And I love how at the end of that story it's like they're focusing on the ships and they're like, Oh, yeah. The Martians are coming, right? That's like, oh crap. <laughs> well, so Dr. Magician, so all the names in this are pretty goofy, right? Like, they're, they're, they're very obviously, it kind of reminds me of, in structure, this, this reminds me of the Talk Pump by Mitchell. Right. Mm, and yeah. yeah, we'll 
there's an interesting tie to that that comes into the end that I, I want to mention when we get there. But yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, magician talks of how he rescued Styles' head from the remains of the dining car, and the head is frozen and well preserved due to being next to the. He calls it a carbon dioxide apparatus, but I think he means a stove. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I, I think that that's what he was talking about. So this thing explodes right next to him, and all this carbonic acid sprays out and creates a sort of blanket of snow crystals around the head, and the wounds have been sealed by ice. So Magician just walks off with the head, bundling it into his car. He wants to experiment on it. You see, Dr. Magician has been working on an artificial hemoglobin serum to replace lost or damaged human blood. And he calls this stuff sanguinum. And notes that it behaves exactly like human blood when tested with Uhlenhuth's method, which was a discovery of Paul Uhlenhuth that is used to basically distinguish human blood from other types of blood. And it does this by essentially separating the different proteins that make up the blood platelets. So he thaws out the head and revives it. And of course, it can't speak yet. So he explains the situation. Magician has a vague feeling of uneasiness, possibly about the ethics of what he's doing. But the happy look on the face makes him feel pretty assured and good about everything. As yet, Magician doesn't know whose head it is, but when he builds an apparatus to allow air into Styles' larynx so he can speak, he hears the truth and is delighted. As it happens, Magician is a really big Style fan, and Style, for one, is very pleased. You see, he had been suffering from a terminal illness and was dying a slow and painful death already. But now, well, he's free to continue his work, or will be, with Magician's help. So first, he's dictating all his works into a phonograph, and Magician is typing them out for him. But then he gets, he says it's a talking typewriter, but I think he means some kind of dictation machine. Dictation machine, I don't, yeah. Yeah, so whatever he's describing seems like it's out of the technology of 1908, but I don't know. <laughs> that's that's pretty cool, I guess. He's thinking ahead, you know, it's kind of like a futuristic machine that you, know, you talk into it and it transcribes what you're writing. Yeah. We have that now, a hundred years later, but it's not that accurate. I mean, sometimes it is, but it depends. There's some really goofy, you have to proofread everything. But uh, just, it's interesting. I, I actually thought about this because... It's, it's the kind of terminology, and again, like it, the, the work is in German, so it's hard to say, but the phrase used is a talking typewriter, and to me that suggests output, you know, like it speaks. But what I guess he really means is you speak into it. So anyway, there's just sort of fixating on the weird technological things in this story, because he does seem to try to provide some interest in that. He does, you know, I yeah. Think I think Hugo Jernsback would have maybe enjoyed these stories a little bit. Yeah. So that thing is something newfangled, obviously. But Style wants his continued existence to be kept a secret. But he becomes somewhat anguished when he learns that his friend or lover, 
perhaps, Evelyn H. is ill, and as a direct result of pining for him and grieving. So he composes a sonnet and posts it anonymously in the paper so she will see it and perhaps take heart. But Vivacious is also pining for Evelyn, and Magician takes a bit of time to realize this, but soon understands why Vivacious isn't quite as vivacious as usual. Well, he determines to seek out Evelyn and reveal the truth to her. He could use a confidant, besides the newspaper editor whom he also told against Vivacious's wishes. Someone to operate the apparatus when he's away would also be nice. The sanguinum has to be replaced every 24 hours. Meanwhile, Vivacious style is a man who has many friends and followers, but also enemies. One of those is a Mr. Retrorsi, with whom he debates strenuously in newspaper columns and elsewhere. Retrorsi has put forward a new colored bill, which, if passed, will restrict the rights of people of color all over the U.S. territory. And Retrorsi also fights dirty, using a lot of slander and other nasty tricks to besmirch his enemy. Gruner hastens to assure us, though, that public opinion is still with Vivacious. The day Magician goes to see Evelyn is the last time he sees Vivacious style alive. You see, Magician's servant, named Finn, probably a drunken Irishman of some kind, has been bribed. Rechorsi suspects something. He's hired a detective agency to uncover the origin of the mysterious articles and arguments. He's moved into Nowhere City. He's been there for weeks. So, when Magician leaves, that filthy Finn alerts Rechorsi, who breaks into the lab and confronts Vivacious. Now, at this point, Magician has designed a sort of cloak to hide a non-existent lower half of the body and to make his the aspect of Vivacious a little less disconcerting. So, Rechorsi, a bullish-seeming guy who swears randomly and often, doesn't notice at first that something is off. But then he hears the sound of an automatic blood transfusion machine, renewing Vivacious's sanguinum supply. And he knows something is up. And he says, Well, that's your secret, Mr. Style. You are no longer a proper person, but only a mechanism in disguise. And you still dare to join the battle of opinions. You dare to accuse me of all sorts of machinations, and you are yourself only a machine that this clever medicine man has patched up again with his damn art. You should stop attacking me with your insane articles. God damn, let me examine you more closely. I should succeed in rendering you and your mechanism harmless in the future. Ha! 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 Here's a piece of an automaton's glass tube inserted into your body. It can surely be broken! And so, that's exactly what he does. He determines to smash whatever it is and prevent Vivacious from causing him any more trouble. 
vivacious style, bleeds to death as all his apparatus is smashed around him. But there is a payback. A big payback. Rechorsi comes in contact with a live and uninsulated electrical cable and is fried. Magician shows up at the house just in time to hear this happening. 50,000 volts discharge into Rechorsi's body. He has achieved his goal. The great vivacious style will speak his stirring paeans to equality and freedom no more. But what of Rechorsi? He's not dead, but paralyzed. He can no longer speak, and his hands won't work. Vengeance of a sort. And that's the end. Except, oh, well, it's, it's not. So the whole thing was a newspaper article. And we have a sort of not important narrator who's given this article by his sister-in-law, I believe, who seems a little bit crazy, perhaps, a little bit weird. And he didn't really look at the date until he finished the article. And then he kind of flips it over and realizes that it's uh, April 1st. And the whole thing is an April Fool's joke. So that's that's the way he ends it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> sort of unfortunate. It didn't need to happen, but I don't know. I liked it a lot. I thought it was really charming and kind of funny, but like it's kind of charming to think that the head in this story was not a crazy scientist or a hapless victim or a mad, greedy businessman. Um, see Donovan's brain, for instance, but just some cool journalist who was fighting for equality and just doing something good yeah yeah did anybody else go get a get a little stab of worry at first when we started reading that because uh, he mentioned the race struggle and i kind of thought oh like mm -hmm. is gruner gonna turn out to be a proto-nazi or something like that yeah at first i wasn't sure where he was gonna go with that yeah. but he, he made it clear pretty quickly when retrocy gets introduced yeah that even his name uh, derivative of like retro or retrograde or something it reminded me of another silly name yeah yeah right but there was this one game i used to play a lot when i was a kid wing commander privateer and there's this faction of like religious cult space pirates called the retros and when you encounter oh. them they taunt you with these various things so i was kind of reading retrocy and his various exclamations and their <laughs> their voices yeah and he's so like he's so hilariously evil like so yeah. so obviously yeah. like nasty a nasty person right yeah <laughs> yeah and the exaggerated names i think is the one bit that i wanted to mention that ties into the ending of the april 1st newspaper framing so the newspaper the sun is mentioned a lot in the story and the story itself is framed as taking place in the German-language newspaper, the Chicagoer Tribune, with yeah. an umlaut over the U in Tribune, which I thought was pretty funny. But uh, apparently there was a sizable enough German community in Chicago where there would be some kind of German-language paper, which I, I thought was kind of interesting that, again, he sets the story in the United States, but sets it among the German-speaking people there. But the son, I couldn't find any clarity to the question of whether there was a sun that operated in Chicago at the time, or if the sun that's being referred to was the paper out of New York that Edward Page Mitchell wrote for and edited for 
many, many years, but since Edward Page Mitchell's stories would often appear uncredited, one of the ways that he would let the audience know that they were reading fiction is to give the characters these really exaggerated and silly names. And Mm -hmm. that's definitely what Grunert is doing here with pretty much every name character. I mean, they have a very silly name that basically describes their personality trait in a word or two. So I kind of wonder if Grunert himself had read Edward Page Mitchell and was riffing on his style a bit, or if there's like this whole other world of sci-fi adjacent newspaper fiction out there that doesn't get covered as much as the magazine fiction or the novels or something like that. We touched upon some of the newspaper fiction a bit in our last episode, and we've obviously talked about Edward Page Mitchell before and his contributions to The Sun, but it does really make yeah. me wonder if there was like this whole world of other newspaper stories out there, because certainly there were a great deal of newspapers being published at the time. I mean, every major city in the United States had several competing papers with one another, and I don't know how many, if any at all, published fiction, or was that something that The Sun mostly did. So, I mean, it's hard to imagine the sun penetrating to Germany, but at the same time, the moon hoax was fairly popular. Exactly. And Poe yeah. wrote about it, and Poe mm. was certainly known in Europe. Yeah. So, yeah. it, it could even be that Grunert himself had a special interest and may have dug into this and may have discovered issues of the sun at some point. Yeah. I mean, they, they also published the balloon hoax. Yeah. Perhaps, like, his interest in these stories is why he sets his stories in the U.S. Like, maybe, you know, he was inspired by stories from the U.S., so he wanted to set his own in that area. Yeah. I can imagine he definitely read Poe and was familiar with him. Certainly Poe had a global appeal that Mm -hmm. a lot of these people, maybe not don't in the same way. Yeah, I mean, we've already we've already talked about the impact that Poe had uh, on France mm-hmm. and Jules Verne, but also on French literature in general with the translations of Poe right. done by Baudelaire. And so, I mean, it's there was something of a German science fiction and science fiction adjacent scene going on in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And it's definitely not as big as France and certainly doesn't seem to be as well navigated and translated in English as the French works are, but no. it definitely appears to be there. And there's certainly at least half a dozen authors that we've identified already that have works you could easily find translated in English. So it would go without saying that there's probably at least several other dozen more authors that have works of interest that have probably not been translated into english yet yeah and there's a really fascinating thing about digging up some of these some of these stories oh absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah this one was a fun one to do i did the translation of this one that's on the blog spot german is certainly not a language i'm super familiar with but with the tools available to the i guess modern reader as far as all the language learning material that's out there as well as dictionaries and phrase dictionaries and the fact that german is spoken by Millions of people. The vocabulary is similar to English, and even though the grammar can be quite a challenge, I think, for somebody who hasn't really taken that much of a serious look at it, this one went pretty well, as Grunert doesn't really write in a very idiomatic style. He's fairly direct in a lot of the things he says. So I think this one went pretty okay as far as the 
translation process goes. Yeah, I would say now it should be pretty readable. Yeah. For anybody who wants to go read it. And that's pretty much our goal to begin with. The Spanish ones I'm better with, obviously, but the German one here, you know, it's very short and to the point. So I think it doesn't pose a lot of difficulties as if he got more philosophical and abstract and was very thick with the metaphors and the idioms. So I think in The Martian Spy 2, Grunard has an interesting emphasis on some of the technology used. Like he talks about making the photographic plates and stuff, which we point out in that episode. Yeah. Here he talks about the blood work with some detail and he talks about the sanguinum and how it might work yeah he also talks about phonograph technology and he talks about something something that i thought was interesting that i I didn't really occur to me that somebody in 1908 would think about was he made a recording for when he was away uh that is uh magician did he made a recording using his phonograph as just i guess security or maybe he thought that style would would say something important. I don't know. He just, it, it's just, it seems like something he just did out of habit. Was he goes out, he turns on the photograph machine to make a recording. And so he actually hears Richorsi breaking in and saying, God damn, what is this I found here? You and your <laughs> God damn proteges, the, 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 the colored people. And like, he's just, <laughs> yeah. he hears all that on the phonograph. And, and he, uh, I mean, he wouldn't think there would be enough room. As a single phonograph to record very much, but certainly not on a 1908 disc. No, I mean I, it does seem to be projecting a little bit forward yeah. with some of this stuff. Yeah. yeah, the predecessor to those ring doorbells. Yeah, exactly. that's able to record people. Yeah. yeah, the early 20th century version of that, all on wax cylinder. Uh, I was impressed by the detection machine too. Yeah, that was a common application of the technology at the time. They were doing a lot of stuff with dictation machines and mm-hmm. recording to magnetic medium was still several decades away. But by 1908, they had certainly well figured out how to etch things into plastics and other pliable materials like that to replicate sound waves. So here's another uh, obscure link that I thought of when reading this to something we did a long time ago on the podcast that we didn't necessarily like that much even though it was fairly well written that would be the atoms of Claudney by Wellplay. yeah yeah there's a similar device in there yeah no very cool so that's it really i mean this is a really short story there's no this is not a whole lot to talk about but i think what there is is interesting and mm-hmm. it's a really good preamble to what's coming next yes so go read it on our blog spot okay without further ado then this time our writer is not german but russian we're going to be introduced here on the podcast to Alexander Belayev.
Our next author has been called the Soviet Jules Verne, even though contemporary scholarship states that this title certainly wasn't applied during his lifetime and might still be a bit of an exaggeration, but Alexander Believ remains most likely the most prolific author of science fiction from the early days of the Soviet Union, that is, pre-1953. Despite the fact that several of his works have been translated into English for some time now and have a bit of a global cult following, especially the work we're going to be covering tonight, there's almost no English language scholarship on the man himself. So to dive deep into the weeds, you really need to consult Russian language sources, of which there is certainly a wide variety of. The primary one we're going to be drawing from tonight is Zayev Barcella's 2013 critical biography on him. As Barcella notes, for such a prominent author, there is sparse primary documentation for certain portions of his life, but his biography nonetheless is extremely detailed based on what is there and avoids the hagiography and exaggeration of some elements of his life which are apparently present in previous Russian language critical looks at him. Indeed, much of the book is constantly responding to previous scholarship as apparently lots of earlier scholars made a great deal of supposition and exaggeration based on what little primary sources there are for various points in his life to kind of portray him as this like national hero writer. And Barcella really tries to put a more demystifying spin on the man. So Alexander Believ was born on March 4th, 1884, if we use the Julian calendar. March 16th, if we don't. Russia made the switch to the Gregorian in 1918, so feel free to pick what you like. He was the son of an Orthodox priest in Smolensk, and Believ was attracted to music at an early age, developing an interest in photography, the Esperanto language, but perhaps most of all was his love of pranks and daredevil stunts, of which he injured himself several times. The most severe of these, channeling the spirit of our tower jumpers from the flight episode, was when he fell off the roof of a barn, hurting his back, which would affect him for the rest of his life. His father wanted to see him follow in his footsteps, and Alexander graduated from the Smolensk Theological Seminary in 1901, but didn't have any intention of joining the clergy and took away from the experience a rather firm conviction in atheism. It's really interesting, kind of seems like the opposite of Bogakov, in a way. Yeah. Because he also had that that pretty much the same background, but drew the opposite conclusion. <laughs> yeah, and I think the two are very contrastable to one another, and they have very interesting parallels and coincidences, which we'll certainly see in a bit. But it's around this time that he gets involved with the theater, and he attends the Demidov Lyceum from 1902 to 1906 in Yaroslavl. During the 1905 revolution, he participated in some of the social unrest and maintained ties with various social revolutionaries. And after the revolution was quelled and order restored, Believ is put under surveillance for his ties to these kind of revolutionary activities, and in 1909 is searched by the police. Despite the troubles with the law, he pursues a legal career of his own, and by 1914 was a barrister, gaining a reputation as a good lawyer. Starting in 1906, he wrote several pieces for the Smolensky Vesnik newspaper, and briefly left his law practice in late 1914 to serve as executive editor of the paper. 
The pieces he wrote at this time are collected in the Anna Adrianko's anthology of the unknown Alexander Belyev, which contains an introduction that goes into some detail about the paper and Belyev's time here. He married his first wife, named Anna Stankovich, possibly. Barcella notes that her name only comes from unreliable and unverified sources, who apparently cheated on him and ended the marriage. He married again to a Vera Bilinskaya a few years later in 1913, and it was around this time that he had several of his plays staged. However, this productive period would come to a sharp end in 1915 when he contracted tuberculosis of the vertebrae that left him bedridden for six years, three of which he had to spend in a plaster cast due to paralysis of his legs, which lasted for several months. His second wife leaves him during this period, as, according to her, she didn't get married to be a caretaker. So Belyev engrosses himself in books and educates himself across all fields. He moves to Yalta with his mother, and here, in particular, he reads a lot of H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and his fellow countryman, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, all of which we covered together in our Moon episode way back when we first started the podcast. In 1919, in Yalta, he meets his third wife, Margarita Konstantinova Magnashevskaya, and the same year, his mother dies, and Alexander is still too physically weak to attend her funeral. He is slowly able to walk again by 1921 with the help and patience of Margarita, the love of which really invigorates him, and the two get married in that year. By 1922, he's overcome the disease and is able to return to a normal life, and he works a series of various jobs in short succession, the head of a colony school, the head of a police photo lab, and as a librarian. It's tough to find good work in Yalta, so they move to Moscow in 1923, where he's employed at the People's Commissariat of Posts and Telegraphs. It's at this time he starts his fiction career, publishing Professor Dowell's Head in short story form somewhere. We say somewhere because Barcella notes that the publication history is pretty murky, and there are unverifiable rumors of it appearing in a newspaper called Gudok, or Beep, in 1924, but the first verifiable publication of it is in the Workers' Gazette, serialized between June 16th and July 7th of 1925, in addition to being serialized in a different publication that same year called World Pathfinder. It was expanded into a novel in 1928 under the title that translates to something like Those Raised from the Dead, and again revised in 1937. And we'll get more into the edition differences in a bit, but after the 1925 publication, Belyev, up until 1932, wrote the bulk of his fiction output, which, among other things, include his most popular novel, The Amphibian Man, as well as The Last Man from Atlantis, The Battle in the Ether, The Air Cellar, and Hoity Toity. He was popular, but critical reception on his work was rather mixed. One critic said of The Amphibian Man, quote, Any young reader of Belyev will confirm that neither Cooper nor Main Reed nor Jules Verne, nor even Wells wrote such in a wooden language. In 1932, this productivity slows down a bit. They move to Leningrad at the time when censors are taking a dim view to science fiction, and he's not able to get any manuscripts accepted for publication. To get work, he moves to Murmansk, which is in the far north of Russia, and does law work, and gets involved with civil engineering projects to improve the infrastructure 
of the area. It's supposed to be one of the coldest places in the world. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. Quite far up there, pretty much right oh, on yeah. the Arctic Ocean. I think it's like 15 or 20 hour train ride north of Moscow or something like that. Mm-hmm. R- Russia's really an enormous place and going north to south is far less than going from east to west. It's kind of crazy at just how massive the territory is and how hostile the terrain is, especially in the winter. But in 1934, he meets H.G. Wells and begins a correspondence with Salkovsky. And in 1935, becomes a contributor to Around the World, which is one of the longest-running Russian magazines, sort of like the Russian equivalent of National Geographic, but it was founded almost 30 years prior to National Geographic. So I guess you could say National Geographic is the American equivalent of Around the World. He's able to publish KETS Star at this time and leaves the magazine in 1938, moving to the city of Pushkin, which was about 15 miles south of Leningrad. Pushkin had been recently renamed. It was formerly known as Sarskoye Selo, which means something like the Tsar's village, and was renamed in 1937 to honor the poet and presumably not celebrate the Tsar in these times of revolution and workers' paradise. So right before war breaks out, he publishes his last novel, Ariel, in 1941, and would die in the early stages of the war. So the Nazis capture Pushkin in September of 1941, and Belyav dies of starvation during the occupation on January 6th of 1942. Unlike our author from last episode, Bulgakov, Belyev's novels were republished several times in his lifetime, and he was a celebrated figure throughout most of the Soviet era and into the present day. Numerous films were made out of his works, the earliest of which was the adaptation of The Amphibian Man, produced in 1961 and 1962. And I haven't read the novel, but it's the first genre film, if you could call it that, I saw from the Soviet Union a very, very long time ago but certainly one I would like to revisit now that I've seen a lot more of those Soviet fantasy and sci-fi movies and have now read something from Belyev. And maybe we'll read The Amphibian Man on the podcast later on. We'll see. Yeah, and there's an interesting thing with the the Soviet films, too, is that fantasy was not really embraced as much as science fiction was. And there's the speculation is that because... You know, the Soviet censors and arts bureaus and stuff were, were really into the social realism aspect. Mm-hmm. And they thought there was maybe value in science fiction in that it projected possible positivistic outcomes of the future and so on. And whereas was fantasy, you know, it, unless it was a unless it was like a work by Pushkin or something like. Yeah, right. There's a lot of folklore adaptations, particularly done by Petrushko, who is... Yeah such an underrated director in the present era. I, I just absolutely love his work. And yeah, as you were saying, he did an adaptation of Ruslan and Ludmilla. He did. Yeah, that's uh, what I was going to mention. Uh, yeah, he, he's, he's done several really well done fantasy movies. He did like this really crazy Finnish co-production called Sampo, which is based on the Finnish epic. The Kalevala. Right. Yeah. Which I first heard about because of Amorphous yeah, and right. Tales from the Thousand Lakes <laughs> way back. But yeah. And did he make uh, Vai as well? Yeah, he did the animation scenes for that. Some other guy okay. directed it. So that's a Gogol story that's like really, a really, really great horror story. It is, really. yeah. A true 
gothic horror. And horror isn't really a big thing that you see really at all in Soviet cinema. Aside from that one, I saw yeah. one called The Savage Hunt of King Stock. And that's, again, more weird gothic folkloric stuff. But I really haven't seen anything that you could consider horror, at, at least maybe before the 1980s, maybe in the 80s, there there's yeah. something like some weird monster movies. But And again, a part of like, my mind says that that's because they didn't see value in it. it, so it exactly, it. yeah. But you yeah. do see a fair amount of science fiction as well as the traditional Russian folklore adaptations, as well as, I guess, Petrushko did some other fantasy-adjacent type stuff. But yeah, a fair amount of science fiction during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and certainly some that is well-critically acclaimed internationally. I mean, I think Solaris is pretty much the first work of science fiction that anybody mentions from the Soviet Union, and for good reason. But it's certainly not the only one that is there. There's also another version of Solaris that they did for TV before the Tarkovsky one. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's a... Uh, I, I, have either of you watched that? No, I haven't. I haven't. I, I didn't know about that. Yeah, there, it's like a four-episode thing that they did in the 60s, which apparently is closer to the novel, but the cinematography and special effects are like nowhere near the level of Tarkovsky. Right. Um, but Tarkovsky is a very different spin on, on it is Clem for sure. Yeah, so. I mean, he, he he's like a Kubrick in that he brings his own style to the story, and it's a very appealing style, but if you're looking for like a one-to-one -one adaptation of the novel, you're really not going to get it from there. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But our story tonight also has a film adaptation, which we'll get to a little bit after we talk about the story itself. Yeah. So let's get into the story a bit. As mentioned before, there's several editions of the text in Russian. The first is the 1925 short story version, which you can read in English translation of in the anthology Red Star Tales, which was edited by Yvonne Howell. Then there's the first novel version from 1928. And the difference between the 1925 short story version and the 1928 novel is more or less that he expands and draws out certain scenes more. The basic plot points are more or less the same, with the most notable addition being the entire Bridget plotline background and the Angelica Guy character. Yeah. In the short story version, she's just Mrs. Watson and yeah. doesn't really have nearly as many excursions as she does in the novel. Likewise, the scenes in the mental hospital get fleshed out a lot more. I had read the short story and had watched the film just today. I find it interesting that Bridget has a different name in each she does, yeah. version. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, It's sort of like I have to remember which name I have to refer to when I'm talking about each piece of media. Yeah, That's kind of the case, too, for me and the next story that's coming up. Mm. I don't really get into the extended stuff for, for the story so much. So, I mean, we'll talk about it, I think, more towards the end. But I definitely think that maybe the story suffers a bit from having so many revisions, like different yeah. versions and stuff, yeah. because I think that, that some of the things feel kind of bolted on a little bit. I think generally the short story version is cleaner. Yeah, it's more tight. It is. Because, uh, like, yeah, the the novel, it feels like there's a lot being explored, that it feels sort of, like, overpacked with stuff. Yeah. yeah, and the novel version we read, which is the translation of the 37 version, there's mm -hmm. an introduction by Theodore Sturgeon, and even comments on this saying that, like, characters just, like, randomly show up whenever they're conveniently needed by the plot. Yeah, 
One thing that I thought was really funny too is he says everybody in the book is an altogether everything. Like that's an altogether good or yeah, altogether right. this or yeah. altogether the other thing. Like <laughs> there's a lot of altogether. Yeah. In this. <laughs> yeah. But there were a couple changes made from the nineteen twenty eight version to the thirty seven version. Belyev deleted a passage from one of the early chapters, which I've translated and posted on the blog spot if you wanna read that. And he also added a small passage to one of the early chapters. Barcelona doesn't comment on any other changes, if any other were made in the book. So I'm not entirely sure if he made minor changes here and there, but it's certainly possible. I, I didn't compare the two in Russian. Uh, the ending has changed a little bit, right? I, I don't know what if he changed from the 28 to the 37, but in the from the novel to the short story, it does play out a little differently. Yeah. Okay, well, we, we can get into that a little more afterwards maybe because yeah. i'm not really sure either but i i remember reading about what had supposedly changed in the ending but yeah, yeah. but the 1937 version that we read was translated by antonina boas who also did the version of a dog's heart we read last time but if you do want the complete professor dowell's head experience we do suggest you read the 37 version plus the deleted passage there is a new 2021 translation of the novel by Carl Engel, but I couldn't figure out if it's sourcing from the 37 version or the 28 version. It wasn't really clear from what information was available online. Belyev himself said that he wrote the novel based around the idea of how he felt while being cooped up in a cast, shut out from society for years at a time. Mm -hmm. However, in addition to his personal experiences, there are also several very coincidentally interesting related things along these lines happening almost exactly in parallel with its writing and publication. So in the paper that you alluded to last time, Off With Your Heads, Isolated Organs in Early Soviet Science and Fiction, Nikolai Kremitsov discusses interesting real-world scientific experiments using a similar apparatus described in Belia's novel to keep the severed head of a dog alive which was demonstrated by Sergei Bryukonenko just a few months after Dow's Head was first published. Bryukonenko conducted pioneering research and development on the heart and its functions, and on November 1st of 1926, kept the dog alive for two hours with artificial circulation that had suffered from cardiac arrest. This autojector was created with a Another Sergei, this time a Sergei Chuchulin, is considered to be the first apparatus for cardiopulmonary bypass and extracorporeal life support, and he contributed to cardiac research for the decades following. He was awarded the Lenin Prize posthumously in 1965 for the scientific substantiation and advancements in cardiopulmonary bypass problems. So, in addition to this real-world research, Kremensov also cites the Grunert story we covered in the last segment as an interesting precursor, which is how we found about it in the first place. So reading this paper, I just thought this was such a cool coincidence that you know we'd covered Grunert before, and it just seemed like a really good opportunity to cover it. So, that's where that one came from. Yeah. Now, he says that Grunert stories appear to be translated into Russian, but for the citation he gives, which was for a 1911 Russian translation of The Martian Spy, it looks like it's only a translation of The Martian Spy and not of Vivacious Style. So I'm not exactly sure if it was ever translated into Russian. It is possible Belyev knew some German. Barcelona notes that he visited Germany 
possibly in 1913, so who knows really. But Barcelona also comments on the similarities in timing between Heart of a Dog and Professor Dowell's Head. Yeah, the same year. And in that they both deal, yeah, with a similar subject matter and were both more or less written at the exact same time, though Belyab did not have the publication difficulty that Bulgakov did. So I think regardless of potential influence and real-world coincidences, what we have here is a pretty fun, pulpy story about severed heads. The Theodore Sturgeon intro to the edition we read notes that it would be right at home in a Weird Tales-type environment, and I certainly agree with that statement. Um, As you mentioned, Sturgeon has pretty much described it in being the good guys and the bad guys, and there's no shades of gray in any of the characters, and all the characters here are either our heroes or villains or damsels in distress and while that's certainly true i don't necessarily think it detracts from the story no not really yeah i mean it's really fast moving romp and it has Mm -hmm. some pretty awesome sci-fi horror imagery in it yeah and i enjoyed the main bad guy like (laughs) it was kind of fun yeah especially in the beginning Mm -hmm. like things seem kind of more focused on him I think the book gets kind of sidetracked a lot, and it's it's kind of weird because, like, the book is less tight than the short story, but if the book had been, like, longer, maybe, maybe all that stuff could have been handled a little better and tied together a little more. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it just seems like it hasn't found the happy medium yet, and maybe it needs, now that it's being made into a long work, maybe it needs to be made into an even longer work, because it just seems like things are introduced to pad it out, and they're not really, like, even though they have cool parts, it's not really as satisfying as it could be, because it keeps kind of going off on these different directions, and you're like, it well, does. what about the main situation that we're... What about this head that still has to be revived? What about this? What about the other thing? Like, we're in this asylum, and, like, I don't know. It, it, it was cool. I enjoyed it. But it didn't quite come together, I thought. Yeah, I, I think the same thing, where I... There's definitely a lot of, like, digressions, and, you know, trying to explore different concepts that maybe don't connect entirely with like the major premise that it's all focused on right but i i I still think it's a really fun work and like it has like the ideas that it tries to explore i still think are pretty interesting and has some really good good parts that i enjoyed so yeah yeah yeah, like it it was overpacked but not in like a way that really made me not want to read it it was still entertaining no absolutely and while it doesn't get into the deep political commentary and political satire that the Bulgakov does, it does touch upon the issue of medical ethics pretty quite heavily, I think, and certainly in a meaningful and at times thoughtful way, even though he does at times reduce it to like a good guy, bad guy construction. And we do really have Mm a mustache twirling evil professor (laughs) villain here. Yeah. <laughs> I think this was actually, despite the fact that its origins are different, I think this was, it definitely reminded me of, yeah, like the American pulp kind of stories. Yeah. Like, it was very, it was very episodic and it was very, like, bald about its, yeah, like the everyone's intentions and everyone's things and, like, just sort of sometimes being fun with it. But, like, definitely, you know, there's no, yeah, like, the one character that's, pretty much the antagonist throughout is thoroughly evil and the yeah. the guy that runs the asylum is is totally despicable right. and the mm-hmm. 
two women of the book are both really good, but one of them's kind of foolish. Uh, it's just that the professor is very noble. The, the poor Professor Duel. Yeah. <laughs> or Professor <laughs> Dowell. But it, yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. I can complain about it here and now and see that it didn't all come together. But I mean, the next one we're going to do didn't exactly come together either. And oh, no, I think, you that's know, a, it's an interesting yeah. like they're both. Yeah, they're both pretty cool examples of that. And I don't know. It's no, I, I liked it a lot. It definitely definitely was a very different like it was a very strange contrast to serious in a way oh, just absolutely. like going mm. straight from that to say, <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i don't know I, I i definitely recommend reading it i kind of question some of the things that were done to it and like the passage that gets cut out uh maybe we should talk about it when we actually get there we will yeah but yeah it's it's uh yeah so like amphibian man contemporary reviews of it were also rather mixed and some of the criticism in both the English and Russian language sources tend to be dismissive of Belyev in general as being like a children's author, which I don't think is exactly fair. I mean, he does have a very basic and direct style. But I think, like Butcher's complaint that Jules Verne gets dismissed as a children's author, you know, I don't think it's exactly fair to write them off like that, because I think they do have no. some good ideas here. They do have some interesting stories to tell, and he does have some really great horror imagery in this. The, I guess, one bit of English criticism I did find on the work is in the anthology Russian Science Fiction Literature and Cinema, A Critical Reader, which in particular covers Professor Dowell's head a bit in-depth, but doesn't really cover too much else that he wrote. Which, again, it's a shame he seems to be not too much known in the English-speaking world. Yeah, it's quite prolific, really. Yeah. But fortunately, it looks like the majority of his science fiction-adjacent novels have been translated in English, so we might come back to one of them later. I guess we'll see how we go forward with the Soviet stuff. novel begins with a Marie Laurent, or Marie Laurent. I'm not going to use the French pronunciation, but he's very vague on location and where all of his stories takes place, which I thought was one thing that really struck me way back when I first watched the film for Amphibian mm -hmm. Man. It's like, where is this actually supposed to take place? And he's very vague. Yeah, I think it's supposed to be America. I think it's Paris, yeah. actually. Yeah, in, in the short story, it's the U.S., yeah, yeah, you're right. uh, but in the actual novel, it's Paris. Yeah, you're right. It is definitely, yeah, yeah. Now that I think about it, I, I was reading some of the background and they talked about the the story. I guess they were talking about the short story and mm -hmm. they said it was in America. But now that I, I remember, I'm actually reading it. Yeah, it was definitely yeah. France and Paris. Yeah. But then there's, there is, there is a section in america yeah they, they they go around to a couple of places but yeah again, again locale is kind of vague at first and he just kind of 
drops that that's where they are at a substantial portion into the novel. Certainly mm-hmm. not right up front. Yeah. I mean, I guess it just sort of assumes you'll think the names are French, just like in the short story, Laurent is named Miss Adams instead, so it's yeah, like, they, they oh, this the is an around. American name. Yeah, right. It, again, further adds to the difficulty of all the text versions and things like that. Mm. All the criticism might be referring to different versions of the text. It's kind of annoying to keep it straight, but yeah. Here she is, Marie Laurent. She is applying for a assistant position with a Professor Kern, who immediately insists on a condition that she must keep quiet to have the job. This isn't a problem for her, and he promptly has John, who is his black assistant, to show her to the laboratory and all the weird medical stuff. John is a pretty minor character, but he's always just kind of around in the background doing various things for Professor Kern. But in the laboratory, there is a human heart in a glass box, and on a board is a human head with tubes and valves sticking out of it. The head appears to be alive, bearing a strange resemblance to Professor Dowell, who had previously conducted similar weird experiments in this vein. Marie thinks that this is horrible, and Kern tells her that Dowell was his colleague who requested this type of resurrection before his death. Barcilla notes that Kern and Dowell's names comes from Alexis Carroll, and Belyev split the first half of his last name, Carr, into Kern, and the second half, L, into Dowell. Um, so that's where we get our two characters' names from. Uh-huh. Dowell is unable to speak, but can understand spoken speech, as well as communicate with facial gestures, but he's obviously not fit to be displayed in public, hence the secrecy. Marie accepts the position as her father had recently died, and she has to care for her sick mother, bringing in an income however she can. Kern explains how to monitor the head, but tells her not to turn a certain valve, because if she does, it will kill him instantly. She builds up rapport with the head, though accidentally makes him feel bad referencing the outside world. And it's so obviously a trick, like yeah. right from the beginning too. <laughs> like it's so, don't turn the valve, right? Like it's it's. <laughs> yeah, Kern is a, not a subtle man, but Dowell is a voracious reader, and keeps signaling to Marie to turn the valve. She thinks he wants to commit suicide, but he says that he doesn't want to die, and the valve actually does something else. So she eventually turns it which allows the flow of air to his vocal cords so he can have the ability of speech. However, they hear Kern coming near, and they promptly shut it off. But after a week, Marie and Dowell build up a relationship with one another more, and he is prone to dreaming and reminiscing about his past life. In particular, he wants a body again, and he experiences phantom feelings from where his old limbs would be. This strange situation has affected Marie, which her condition is noticed by her mother, and she's still able to keep silence despite daydreaming about the head falling in an accident and rolling away and really startling her mother as to really what's going on. And this passage here with Marie's mother was the one that Barcella notes was added in the 1937 version. Dowell is still writing, He has his work published under Kern's name, which Marie thinks is very exploitative 
but there is nothing Dowell can do with money and fame in his present condition, and plus he has a vested interest in seeing the research continued successfully. Dowell tells Murray what happened with his death. Curran was his assistant, and they were conducting research on reanimating severed heads when Dowell suffered an asthma attack. Kern injected him with adrenaline, possibly too much, and Dowell dies of shock and is awakened with a sharp pain. He had noticed a similar behavior in dogs' heads they had experimented on, and they had injected a solution of anesthetic for situations like this, and that's pretty much what is keeping him alive. He comes to seeing Kern with his old body, headless and heartless, and Kern makes a joke that he doesn't have asthma anymore. Dowell doesn't really appreciate it very much. (laughs) In addition to the horrors of the situation in and of itself, and of being unable to move when insects are crawling on you, Kern threatens and uses torture to make Dowell continue help with his experiments. Yeah, and he's so, he's so, you know, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. (laughs) (laughs) I'm the victim here. I'm the one that's in pain. Yeah. Real mustache-twirling villain. Um, (laughs) But it's at this point where the deleted passage that was present in the 1928 version and removed from the 37 version is. So in this deleted passage, Dowell asks Marie to kiss him, and not as a kiss of passion, but so he can get a taste of life. And Marie is disgusted by this, but does it anyway, and recoils as he bites her on the lip as to leave an impression on her lip so that might be seen by the outside world. And somehow this whole experience in her head makes her hate Kern even more. So that's the deleted passage. And back in the 1937 version, Marie is really raging against Kern. And Dowell urges caution as he legitimately does need Kern to get him out of this situation. Kern decides to give Marie a raise and announces that two corpses will be brought in tomorrow. He says they aren't corpses yet, but will be soon, says that there's always a fresh supply coming in from the city morgue. The idea is to use one of their heads for a speaking demonstration of what is possible, keeping Dowell out of the public eye for the moment. When the corpses do come in, they are a man who is crushed in a traffic accident, and a woman hit by a stray bullet. He hooks them up the tubes and reveals the true nature of the valve for Marie, who tries to play it off cool that she didn't know beforehand, but he insists still that she must not turn it on for Professor Dowell. The man is named Thomas Bush, who reanimates quite quickly, but is quite confused, and he finds a state to be unacceptable, and the woman takes a little longer to come back. Her tubing needs adjusting, and when it's been all adjusted, She, Bridget, comes alive, who is also horrified at the situation and demands a body for her head to be put on and her hair to be adjusted. They understandably have a very hard time adjusting to their situation. Previous entertainments like music and movies are hard to bear as they serve as reminders of what they had lost. Yeah, this was so interesting, too. They're just, like, hanging out. Like, it's like a... Everybody's trying to be normal, but it's yeah. just—it's no good. Yeah, just a couple of heads. Yeah, yeah. And they must have a pretty impressive movie set up for 
1925. I mean, uh, maybe Kern has his own theater in the laboratory or something like that, because it's not like he's taking these two out to the theater. No, I, I pictured it as just a small like projector screen or something, yeah, something right. like mm-hmm. that. It's, but it's, it's, certainly yeah. long before the age of home video. But yeah, Bridget feels that this experience is proof that the soul is immortal. And Thomas thinks that it's proof that it means that the man is just a machine. Bridget is deeply Catholic and haunted by nightmares of hell. And Thomas is primarily concerned with earthly things. But Bridget demands that Kern give her a body. And he figures why not. It would take his knowledge and experimenting prowess beyond that of Dowell's. She insists on a woman's body. And Kern is eager to proceed, though reliant on Dowell's knowledge still. He doesn't want to give Dowell a body, but experiments with the dogs are promising. Kern hates how Dowell has to correct him, though, and is obviously intensely jealous of Dowell's knowledge. Marie asks Kern why he isn't giving Dowell a body yet, and he says that he needs trial runs in the form of Bridget and Thomas first. Unfortunately, Maria has been found out, and Kern knows that she's been speaking with Dowell, and he has this really great moment where he says that only vice will triumph and (laughs) yeah just a straight up villain here yeah kern wants marie to live at the lab full time and threatens to kill dowell if she doesn't and she eventually caves to this demand her room is well furnished and her salary tripled but there is no escape the time has come for bridget to be operated upon and kern goes to the morgue to check out the corpses One looks suitable, which is a woman that was decapitated by part of a falling building in an earthquake. But her relatives won't release the corpse to him, so he has to wait some more time. Fortunately for Kern, there's a train accident, and he's able to get the bodies before anybody can identify them. And in particular, one of an aristocratic-looking woman and one of a chambermaid, just in case the aristocratic one doesn't work, are taken. Bridget selects the aristocratic woman, but doesn't want to do the operation and wants to die instead. Marie asks if they can do this without her consent, and Kern says that this is not the time for ethical problems. (laughs) One of his great lines of the novel. Yeah. So, forgetting ethics, Kern goes ahead with the operation, and ten hours later, the operation is done. It's an apparent success. And Bridget needs some time to heal with her new body. Even before this, they mentioned the the hole in the foot. Yeah, right. And I was instantly reminded of the cough in the opera uh, Lab OM. And it's like, you know, this this constant reminder that something is not quite right with this person. Right. And eventually it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill them. And it's just like, oh, yeah, but she's got that, that tender foot. She's got that hole in the foot. Something's going to go wrong with that. That's more than just a little cut. Check off foot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so stay tuned and see what happens. <laughs> a few weeks later, her voice comes back with a strange quality when she sings. Kern reads the paper and finds that it's likely she received the body of an Italian artist named Angelica Guy. Bridget is making a marvelous recovery, and she's able to walk and even dance, but Kern still won't let her leave. Bridget finds this unacceptable and escapes out of seemingly impossible circumstances. Kern can't go to the police, so he hires a detective agency to look for her, but she still hasn't turned up anywhere. 
Bridget had swiped Marie's purse and used the money in it to get a cab back to the club where she was killed. The staff are pretty horrified to see her, figuring she was dead, but she doesn't reveal the nature of her resurrection and tells Jean, someone who apparently solves problems, that she escaped from the hospital and needs to get away. She performs one last time before their plane leaves and incorporates some gestures and movements from the Italian woman's body and initially doesn't want to leave, but is secreted away into a car after the performance. Meanwhile, on a beach in Nice, Arthur Dowell, son of the head, and Armand Lare, controversial painter, are hanging out, who are two friends that knew Angelica Guy. They both admired her, and her death causes Lare to go through a bit of an artistic drought. And he goes to a casino and is blowing a whole bunch of money, and he sees a strange woman there who makes a very familiar gesture, somebody who has Angelica's voice, and he's so struck by this that he tells Dowell all about it, including the odd tenor of her voice. His thoughts, of course, naturally turn to his father's experiments about sticking a severed head on a corpse, and he thinks his father is dead. The two of them decide to track down this mystery woman to find out more. They get acquainted with her quite easily, and soon find themselves together on Jean's yacht. Her seemingly dual voice is quite striking, and Lorraine remarked that she sounds remarkably like a friend who died in a rail crash. Yeah, and here again we have that situation of duality with the yeah. two individuals, the two voices in the one larynx, and mm-hmm. the two the two in the one body. And the personalities emerge in interesting ways that the film, I think, plays up more than the novel, but it definitely comes in a bit in the book, too. But this kind of talk is making her uncomfortable, so she tries to leave, but Larry sees the scars on her neck and gets her to come clean about the whole affair. Larry says that she must help him or she'll be found out and executed, and tells her that he's with Dowell and they have to go back to Paris. They show Bridget a photo of Professor Dowell, and she confirms that his head is indeed the one held by Kern. While Larry has been giving Bridget tennis lessons, and bonding with her as Angelica was a great tennis player. One day, he tells her that they have to leave for Paris, right then and there. And Bridget's foot begins bothering her some more. So Larry covertly has a doctor take a look at it, who tells her that it's okay. But the personalities of Bridget and Angelica seem to be transforming into one another. While Larry is working on Bridget, Dowell Jr. is gathering intelligence on Kern. He tries to track down Marie, but only her sad mother is at her apartment. And when Dowell ascertains that she hates Kern for keeping her daughter away and obviously involving her in some kind of strange experiments, Dowell Jr. comes clean about what he knows. And Dowell gets the address of Kern's lab from Marie's mother. But when he comes back to Laurie, he finds out that Bridget has just run off. Her foot has gotten worse. And she feels that the only surgeon she can trust is Kern. So she goes back, leaving a note in Angelica's handwriting. They take the path of caution and try to work on Marie at the hospital and commission a friend of theirs, Schaub, to work on that angle. Schaub is eager to start. He is more interested in chatting up the nurses and the orderlies. And unfortunately, the hospital is more like a prison, heavily guarded with high walls, and Schaub can make no progress. For fear that Marie will talk about the experiments, Kern has her shut up in this hospital for psychic poisoning, 
And Marie is a difficult case. And the doctor who runs the place, this Dr. Ravino, wants her to talk by having her mingle with the other patients at first and maybe let something slip in the conversation. Marie tries to figure out who's insane and who isn't. And one night, Ravino barges into her room and tells her that he knows all about her letters to her mother and comes in every night to psychologically break her, starting to play music from the other room. And again, it's like, this asylum is so un, un, unflinchingly evil it in is. every way. Yeah. Like, he, he, <laughs> he pretty much says, this guy pretty much gets paid by these rich people who spend a lot of money to put away their troublesome relatives and friends and, like, whatever that are <laughs> causing them a problem. And basically torture and them. If they're not insane when yeah. they come in, they're insane yeah, exactly, by yeah. the time they spent a few weeks with them, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, like 99% of them are not insane before they, they go in. And, yeah. like, it's that place that drives them insane. Yeah. I do enjoy how unapologetically horrible the antagonists yeah. are. They are just really, they are very entertaining. I mean, it's really over the top, too. Like, he's in the next room with his violin playing to her every night so she thinks it's going to be all in her head and goes crazy yeah mm -hmm. i mean it's just and yeah the the way that he points out every every lie that she tells and yeah. sort of like the same with curran saying like the evil will triumph and that's kind of what he is saying with her is like the seat will triumph yeah i mean just yeah <laughs> totally evil everything you could want from a great pulp villain yeah, and that music that you were mentioning earlier is like, it starts out as a cello, and then it turns into the sound of a violin, and yeah. then by the end, it's a person sobbing, yeah. and it just repeats over and over and over again, and it's like, <laughs> captivating, to the point where she can't, it, it, it won't leave her head. And yeah, she can't tell what's real and what isn't, and yeah. she starts having these suicidal thoughts, and one day, a new patient starts talking to her. And it turns out to be none other than Arthur Dowell. And he tells her that he's just faking his madness so he can bust her out, which revives her spirits a little bit. And it's something Ravino didn't expect. So Ravino again tries to intimidate her, which makes her consider suicide again. But she decides to wait on Dowell to see what happens. And if Dowell was actually real, or maybe he was just a figment of her imagination. They also say that Dowell does a really good job convincing people that he's <laughs> insane. Yeah. yeah, he's apparently quite the actor. <laughs> yeah. A man of many talents. Yeah, and I mean, he was just introduced at the right moment yeah. as well. Because, <laughs> Very convenient yeah. for the story. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of, like... The the perfect coincidences yeah, to make everything happen just yeah. the way it needs to happen. So, yeah. yeah. But Marie is nervously pacing up and down her brightly lit room when Dowell just burst in, picking the lock. He's fed the dog some distracting meat, and they make their way outside and, again, toss some bread to one of the dogs as they scale the wall. Marie's pushed over the wall by Dowell where she's caught and driven off in a waiting car. Dowell's still on the inside of the sanitarium and he is met by Ravino who puts a straitjacket on him. Ravino tells him that he knows he was faking the whole time but didn't know his aim exactly so Dowell reveals to him his true identity and Ravino puts him in solitary. His psychological tricks won't work on him. Ravino's bright lights and music don't have any effect on Dowell and he's actually able to get some sleep 
and even sings a song back to Ravino to mock him. So Ravino floods the room with chloride. He passes out, but wakes up in the company of Laurie in a police uniform, and him and Schaub had posts as police officers after Dowell didn't come out after they rescued Marie. And somehow they were able to forge a warrant in that amount of time and able to get inside. And they held Ravino's assistant Bush at gunpoint, and a fight breaks out with the orderlies. Schaub is excellent at martial arts and fires a few warning shots in the air. Ravino isn't giving up, so Schaub snaps his arm, and Lurie shoots a few of the orderlies who are going for their weapons. They make Ravino concede to lead them to Dowell, and they throw him in the chloride-filled chamber as they pull Dowell out just in time. Meanwhile, Bridget returns, and Kern is delighted. Her head appears to be rejuvenated by Angelica's body. However, her foot is examined, and Kern says it needs to be amputated, which makes her feel sick. Bridget is having nightmares about Laurie, and is woken by Kern, who says it's time to amputate her leg. She's anesthetized amidst much protest and wakes up with her leg cut above the knee. Kern says that he'll make a new leg for her better than the old one, but that night Bridget is in a fever and is evidence of blood poisoning. Yeah, this is like one of the most disturbing things about the book and about Professor Kern is that like he has these kind of two, I mean, okay, he may not have the best bedside manner in the world, but when he talks to like Bridget and even, you know, when he, when he presents, I guess uh, the side of his work, that's like, yeah, I'm a doctor and I have patients. Yeah. He's like, yeah, I'll do what I can for you. Don't worry. You'll have a new leg and you'll have a new this, but then like, really he's the kind of guy that just tosses a, a dead head into a bin, like <laughs> doesn't even think about it. Yeah. Just like, tosses it in the bin yeah right and it's like there's just this receptacle waiting and he's just like oh this is waste matter now and he just tosses it away so that's pretty much what he does he cuts yeah. off her head and back to a bodiless state she goes yeah thomas however never got a body to begin with he's still just a head driving himself crazy and yeah this is really sad it too. is yeah mm-hmm. and yeah. he plays with the airstream valve and attempt to alleviate the boredom, but accidentally dislodges it, causing him to lose consciousness. Yeah, he basically is like, I'm going to hold my breath till they die. Yeah. And that's what he does. So he tries to scream, but John hears the noises, and he puts the head back in the tube as best he can, but unfortunately it's too late, and the head is too far gone. So yeah, Kern just throws it in the trash. Yeah. Bridget wakes up, and around this time, she witnesses this spectacle and during all this Kern receives a letter from Ravino filling him in on what happened at the medical ward. Kern decides to send out reports to the press and scientific societies of his successes and experiments. Meanwhile at the good guys Lurie's house is a home base and Marie is reunited with her mother and naturally Dowell and Marie are falling for one another. Naturally. They're all discussing what their next move should be when Marie brings in the paper with a headline of Curran's pronouncements. Marie proposes they attend the demonstration and denounce him for a murder and a fraud, and her mother is quite taken aback by her temper and her passion, and Dowell is initially against this, but her persistence persuades him. Curran carefully loads Bridget's head into the auditorium for the demonstration, and everybody is slowly filing in. 
As an older scientist is speaking, Marie storms the lectern and pronounces Kern to be a murderer. He tries to play it off cool and says that she's just been mad from the work she's been doing, but the mood in the room has been spoiled, and Dowell Jr. goes to the police, and they've said they've already searched Kern's place but have found nothing, but Dowell insists they search again with him there present personally. So they go back to Kern's lab where they find another head, and it's Professor Dowell's. And they don't recognize yeah. him at first because he's been given a face transplant. The head is dying, but before he goes, he confirms to the police what Marie said is true. Yeah, it was just like it was just like he was waiting for this moment. Yeah, right. <laughs> I guess it is a very cathartic, powerful moment. Like it, if you're gonna wait for a moment to die, maybe this moment is a good moment to yeah. wait for. I guess I don't know. Yeah. It, it worked anyway. It was powerful. It was, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a very operatic book in that sense. Like, those kind of, I don't know, it feels like destiny. It feels like everything fits together in this, this sort of tragic comical pattern. Yeah, tragic for Professor Dowell. But when the police go to arrest Kern, there is a shot heard off screen. And- <laughs> yeah. That is how the novel ends. Either yeah. Kern shoots himself or the police shoot him. I, I got the takeaway that Kern shot himself, but when I was reading some commentary, they mentioned that the police might have shot him. I thought that it was suicide, but... Uh, oh, I thought he shot himself. I even yeah. read in the yeah. comment that, I don't know, yeah. that It did seem maybe a little bit out of character. Like, he would... He believed himself to be in the right, so he would fight for it. It seemed more than that, but... I don't know. I guess not. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Fun novel. I mean, uh, we got a lot of tragic moments at the end, but I think overall it keeps a pretty fast, fun, pulpy pace throughout. Yeah, everyone dies in the end except for the happy couple. <laughs> yeah, and, right. Like, the other guy who's like not quite as happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do feel bad for Bridget. Yeah, she doesn't get a very good deal. No, and I don't know. Um, like it just it just sort of felt like after. Like, the asylum part was kind of cool in its own way. And after they rescued Marie from the asylum, it just seemed like everything, again, like, everything just got sad. Everybody just started dying. Yeah. And (laughs) even the storming of the lecture that was supposed to be Kern's crowning glory, it was just (laughs) somehow, I don't know, yeah, but I, I did like when... The authorities came to investigate, and they had they had the good guys there, and they came in, and they were kind of, first they kind of dominated the situation with the asylum, and then afterwards, they visited Kern, and they're just like, hey, we're going to look around here, and you're not going to stop us, and yeah, time's up, buddy, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so... Kern was not as bright a scientist as Dowell, and it seems like he wanted all the personal glory without doing most of the work. And that's kind of, it's kind of the portrayal of Kern as this charmer almost who manages to win people over and convince them to do things, but isn't actually all that awesome at science. And he needs Dowell to like help him and coach him how to do things and stuff. <laughs> It's like, it's kind of pathetic in a way. And like Dowell's the the one he's like, certainly I'm never going to give you a body. Right. Those other two. Yeah. yeah I'll consider it, but not you. You're far too precious to me. 
<laughs> and I think that's some of the real world issues he does try to tackle with the novel of ethics in science and not only just doing your own research and not plagiarizing and taking credit for the work of others, but what you're doing with that knowledge. I mean, Kern is obviously using it in a very unethical way, whereas Dowell seems more on the righteous side. Mm-hmm. He, he doesn't use this knowledge to hurt or screw people over or unethically experiment on people. His experiments seem to be confined to animals, and you know you can debate on how ethical that is in the first place, but it's certainly not to the level of just randomly bringing back people and leaving them in this bodiless state on your shelf in some bin somewhere. I uh, I do think, I know that, Nate, you had seen the film adaptation. And I think that aspect is much more, like, highlighted in the film. It is. Yeah, it's, it definitely is. Yeah. Um, okay, so I didn't watch that. Did you guys both watch the film? Yeah. I just watched it a couple of hours ago before the recording. Yeah, I, I watched okay. it a few days ago, so it's, it's still fairly fresh in my mind. And I think it's an interesting take on it. So it's called The Testament of Professor Dowell, and I was originally curious as why they changed the name, and it really isn't Professor Dowell's head. I mean, it has a lot of obvious similarities to it, and there's <laughs> many of the plot points are similar, and the characters are the same, but it feels like kind of a jumble of the novel's plot points, and it's a very different presentation on how the events unfold, and, and there's some pretty clear differences, especially how the story plays out at the end. And as you said, Gretchen, I think they really do play up the medical ethics issues more in the film. In particular, Bridget in the film, she's called Monica. (laughs) That's her, I guess, third name in this whole saga. (laughs) And she gets a fourth name. Yeah. (laughs) But her backstory is much more of a, a focal plot point of the film's story than the novel is. There's a couple other very notable changes. I mean, Marie's character seems to be the most changed. Kern is much less of a pulpy villain. And I thought one thing that was interesting is where the shootout where Bridget slash Monica is killed is Mm -hmm. much, much more violent in the film and bloody. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the horror imagery in the film is kind of kept to a minimum as like the head isn't really gross. He's just like there and talking in a weird voice. But the practical effects are on it are pretty cool, I thought. Yeah, and I do think also in the film that it like thinking about this idea of like in the the novel, Professor Dowell is portrayed much more as a victim, where in the movie he even acknowledges himself that he's to blame for some yeah. of this. Yeah. And there's that one line in the beginning where it's like it's it seems like Arthur mentioned something about like science is taken by like people in uniforms. Like they kind of come and twist what seems like pure science into something that can be turned against people. And I think those ethical dilemmas really play out in the decades that follow the publication Mm -hmm. of the novel into when the film was made. I mean, the whole issues of ethics behind developing something like the atomic bomb, which Mm -hmm. can kill hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people in a single shot and leave the survivors with these horrible, life-altering, permanent injuries. Yet, it involves incredibly advanced physics and Mm -hmm. technology to develop such a thing. So you need these incredibly intelligent and learned visionary people to do that kind of work. But what kind of work are you doing when the end product is going to be used for such a horrible, real-world 
event. And mm-hmm. yeah, the film does play a yeah. bit more in the ethics angle than the novel does. But the novel does touch on it a little bit, I think. But mm-hmm. it's interesting that the film does focus on that more than the kind of fun, pulpy romp that most of the novel is. So do you think Belayev is coming from the position that, like, it's just horrible to be doing this to people in general, and, and like, you shouldn't you shouldn't try to keep a head alive like that? I think Belayev is a little more, I wouldn't say naive, but some of the criticism mentioned that he has this idea that the good guys in science will always win. And mm-hmm. I think that's how he kind of frames the story here. And while Professor Dowell himself dies at the end, you know, the good guys are triumphant. Kern is dead. Yeah. Nobody's going to be chopping off anybody else's heads and sticking them on other bodies anymore or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And he, he does kind of reduce these ethical issues to a simple good guy versus bad guy thing without any of the shades of gray that these issues often present themselves in the real world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. I mean, and that, that too kind of goes back to what we were saying about the, even though the origins are very different, this, this does kind of feel a little bit like a contemporaneous American pulp sort of story yeah it's pretty clear about that distinction about who we can trust a little bit to do the right thing and who's never going to do the right thing right basically so it's, it's really interesting to hear about the film i didn't watch it so and i'm glad i'm glad that you guys both did it sounds like it's influenced by the next like 50 years of thought about issues like this i suppose <laughs> and stuff yeah Another thing the film carries over from the novel, but not in the same way as the vagueness of locale. Like I was yeah. trying for the entire... I, that's what I was going to say is <laughs> I have no clue where it's supposed to take place. Yeah. It, oh. It's like clearly in some tropical area where there's palm mm-hmm. trees. Initially, I thought it was Africa at first, but then like maybe it's South yeah. America. Maybe it's in the Caribbean somewhere. Yeah. Like I just have no idea. Yeah, I was thinking like South America, yeah. but I'm not sure. I, I don't know if the creators of the film are sure i wonder where they filmed it yeah i'm not sure i I didn't look up the location details but the soviet union was pretty involved in a lot of those countries globally during this time Mm. latin america africa so who knows it could have been anywhere really yeah yeah i'm not exactly sure what the purpose of that was i mean like i'm not sure yeah i don't know either i mean (laughs) uh, maybe palm trees were a popular thing that people like to see in (laughs) soviet cinema at the time yeah maybe (laughs) it's an exotic location yeah exactly one thing in the book that i highlighted and noticed was there's that whole section which is the scenes with the casino at monte carlo yeah and it's this like deliciously salacious den of iniquity and vice (laughs) (laughs) it's definitely inviting but also horrible and decadent to the extreme and I wonder if the censors liked that part, and they probably did, because you can set your decadent scenes in places like France and, oh, and Italy and yeah. America, yeah. And, and just show like how everyone succumbed to this vice and horrible love of money and gambling, and like yes. you know, it's just <laughs> the corruption of capitalism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it was really effective. Like I can, you know, it's, it's interesting to read that because. We read about Bill Gokov and, and all the trouble that he had getting his work out there and, and the satire and how unacceptable some of the satire was in the Soviet Union. But this kind of satire apparently was perfectly acceptable. Oh, yeah, of course. Make fun mm-hmm. of the Americans and the capitalists and yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
there, there's some really fantastic Soviet science fiction cinema from the 20s and 30s that does lay into American imperialism and capitalism in a really funny way. The film Interplanetary Revolution which is just an absolute treat. Mm. It, it, it's pretty short in one of those like silent movies that are <laughs> just, just so cool to watch for the animation. Mm. But yeah, mm. v- very sharply critical and satirical of making fun of the fat cat capitalists sitting on their piles of money and all that. Yeah, and I think that Asylum was also like kind of a, yeah. a, a critique of that. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, you pay these guys enough money and they'll they'll, you know, lock up your so called loved ones. Oh yeah. tragic. So sad, too bad. Yeah. And the reason they're being locked up is also for greed and like you want to have the, the money that they're leaving behind you before they die. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, so, I mean, it seemed like in a way the novel had a very sympathetic attitude toward criminals and lawbreakers and such because they have a just cause. They're rebelling against this this thoroughly corrupt society. Yeah, and I mean, just rebellion and revolution was certainly a part of the Soviet mindset and culture at the time. I mean, mm-hmm. it had just happened not a decade prior. And Belyev was obviously very sympathetic to the revolutionaries. Yeah. Yeah, like even Bridget's work, the friends, John and Marth, I believe, right? The name of the woman that they were traveling with. Like, they seemed kind of cool. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, even the gamblers, you know, I mean, they're victims of their society, and they're to be treated with sympathy, and and the the people like the good guys, Dao and his two main friends, the the young Dao, that is, and the two main friends, like, they're bohemians, and they're kind of like, they don't necessarily have friends in the establishment. Because they've done a few things, a few questionable things, right. and there are, are kind of sympathetic characters, right? So, but yeah, and I, I don't know. That it was interesting because, yeah, if you want to tell this tale of decadence and corruption, you set it in a foreign land. But on the other hand, it does seem like, judging by what we read, there was a certain fascination in the Soviet Union at that time with reviving dead heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean they were on the scientific frontier and you know just any excuse they would have to put themselves forth as being the leaders in some scientific area as a point of national pride. I think that really yeah. drew a lot of those early revolutionary scientists and engineers. We made the head survive for 2 hours. <laughs> America could only do it for an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> the great head race. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, fun book. Definitely definitely check this one out. You know, I, again, I, I feel like the book didn't really stretch to accommodate everything. Like, I think that maybe it suffers from a lot of the same problem that people criticize. Some of the, the science fiction works and serials of the 1940s when they got published in paperback novel form. Right. Like Foundation, for instance, where it just seems like it was originally something else and they made material to patch up everything together and make it fit and it seems like if Belayev really wanted to explore everything that needed to be explored the novel actually needed extra length like needed to be longer than it actually is yeah even though like originally maybe it was a tight short story about professor dell's head 
and then it became something else and just sort of expanded into this big thing and the, the, the whole business with the asylum is fun to read but ultimately feels like a distraction and I kind of realized that I was getting towards the end of the book and I'm like well a lot of the things that I was wondering about and thinking about are obviously not going to get talked about that much now yeah. this is not gonna it just sort of it didn't feel right in that sense like it felt like there was too much and i i can't remember exactly what you said gretchen earlier but you summed it up very well when you were like kind of saying that it was it was stuffed to the seams almost mm-hmm. and not quite it was just like he wanted to expand the length and he introduced all these things but in the end the expansion didn't expand quite as much as you might hope. So all these other things were kind of dangling around a little bit. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder how his other works play out, because this is his first work of fiction, then it, you know, it, it is going to transform itself from short story form to novel form. Mm. So I wonder if his other works that started off as novels to begin with are a little bit tighter and come together a little better yeah what was the other one we had on there was not the amphibian man though it was i said elita earlier but i realized that's not by him that's no. by alexei tolstoy yeah he had a couple others ariel was his last novel there's also k-e-t-s star fair amount of it actually has been translated to english which is nice i mean that's good compared to some other authors i suppose yeah. And definitely, though, some of the soviet science fiction authors even the the Strugatsky brothers who are probably the most, I guess, recognized of uh, of the whole Soviet scene in the English-speaking world, at least, have been poorly translated or translated in a way that's is, is a very strange shows very strange choices right. on the parts mm-hmm. of the translators, like Roadside Picnic, which got made into another Andrei Tarkovsky film, Stalker. Yeah, right. Yeah. And the English translation that I read, certainly in the early 2000s, was very, it was very odd. Like it it made it seem like a hard boiled, it it almost had like this hard boiled crime kind of style to it. It was very odd. And apparently the Russian's not like that at all. So it, it almost seems like a conscious choice to make it more appealing to Western audiences or something. I don't know. But it's just, I, I kind of want to read the new translation and see what that's like. Well, we'll certainly take a look at that at some point. But yeah, this one is interesting because it was translated by the same person who did the Dog's Heart one we did. And looking at the original Russian from Bulgakov to Belyev's, Belyev's much more simple and direct. So I think there's less leeway for losing things in translation with the belly of than there is in the Bulgaka. Bulgakov is a lot more idiomatic, Absolutely, I suppose. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. More wordplay, yeah. more stylistic. It's so funny because it almost seems like, like it or not, Bulgakov is almost more like, his work almost feels more grounded in the people and in how people talk and think and stuff like that. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. Belyev, who who is... Perhaps more of the upstanding communist citizen maybe lacks a little bit of that touch, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, Bogokov maybe was a bit reactionary and a bit like, yeah, like he had this religious angle and stuff like that. But you can kind of feel his struggle and you can relate to him in a way. I don't know. We're not going to do the Master and Margarita on the podcast. We talked about that last time. But that's a very, very powerful work and a very personal feeling work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Bogokov is is somebody who, even though maybe I can't agree with every view that he had, I feel a lot of sympathy for him as a person in the struggles that he had to go through. Yeah, Belayev too, though, in a way. I mean, it seems like it seems like he had a pretty like if that's really true and. This book was inspired by his kind of incapacitation for many years. Yeah. Like that's a that's a very powerful thing, whether it is, it yeah. is or it isn't mm-hmm. an inspiration. You can imagine that that feeling of isolation too. That scene when he can't swat away the insect, like that yeah. kind of takes on an even I know. worse. Like it, that's it's such a horrible thing to think about when you think if that's probably what he experienced. Yeah, certain things like beads yeah. of sweat on your forehead, or yeah. I, things that would just drive you crazy mm. <laughs> yeah really and you know i mean and just just it's hearing about like his first two marriages that went kind of badly yeah right and mm-hmm. it's first he had that that chronic back injury and married his first wife and that didn't go well and then he got really sick the second time he married and she's just like walking away because she doesn't want to have to deal with that and I don't know. I mean, despite the pulpy style, there does seem to be a lot of like real emotional resonance with this. And in a way, I think it's almost unfortunate because like Professor Karn is so evil. And but the idea of reviving the head, like there's there's complexities behind that. Like the last story we read, the head was very happy about being revived because it was like, yeah, I'm not like us. My body's not dying anymore, and I I feel good, and I can continue my work. The only problem is this person I love is feeling really bad for the fact that I died, and I can't tell her that I'm a head in a pan now, <laughs> right? But I don't know. It's just it's, it's really interesting thinking about what Billy have actually thought about the situation. Like it seems it seems hopeless and sad. All the the heads in all the trays don't make it through the book. Not one of them. And I was kind of hoping at least one of them would make it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of sad that, that yeah. <laughs> not even not even one. There were three of them. Oh, well. So be it. Yep. It's a tragedy it once is. again. Yeah. <laughs> all these stories end in tragedy. Except for the next one. Well, we'll see how that one ends in a minute. Yeah, the next one end, ends with justice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I enjoyed this work, and I, even if it, you know, kind of strayed away from the core of it, I still think it's a, a f- really good read. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. I think it's just like towards the very end, I got a sinking feeling because I knew like there was only a little bit left, and mm-hmm. somehow it was going to have to all be wrapped up, and I knew that it wasn't going to be fully satisfying. And I guess that's not unusual. I'm the kind of person that when I read it, I read books. I often kind of feel like the very, very end is the least memorable part of the book. <laughs> Somehow, like, it's, the journey in getting there was great, but, right. I, like, if you ask me to describe it, and you ask, like, oh, how is the how is the enemy defeated in the very end? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I, I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of that with this. Like, I, in the beginning, I was really, I really, really was into it, and Right up to the asylum, I was really into it, and I'm just like, and then I think it was during that part. I'm, I'm kind of thinking to myself, uh, this is awesome, but there's only like 50 pages left. How can we really finish this up? And I don't know, but it, it was good. It was fun. And I don't want that to take away. I don't want what I said to take away from anybody's enjoyment of the book because I think it is worth reading. I just 
I think it, I think maybe it has some structural problems, and I think that we'll see that again when we discuss fix-up novels, which are really a thing in the United yeah. States in the 1950s. Well, I guess speaking of things that are really a thing in the United States, Belyev didn't have a lot of biography and criticism on him in the English language, but I don't think that's true about our next author. Oh, no. And we've already discussed a lot of him in a previous episode where we covered one of his very early works, Dagon. Of course, a writer, H.P. Lovecraft. This story, Herbert West, Reanimator, was published five years after Dagon, and he had certainly written a lot since then. But a significant thing about this story is that it's a first for Lovecraft in many ways. And we'll address that after this brief interlude. <laughs> 